I know you know that our, our tech team here is the one that makes all that stuff, right? That's Hunter and, and crew. Yeah, thank you, man. Um, you know, when we first merged and started here, there was a lot of package videos. We'd buy online and use those, and they were, they were great too, but uh, Hunter and, and team were able to put together this stuff and, and uniquely design it uh, just for our message series, so I'm, I'm grateful for that. So uh, way to go for surviving time change Sunday. Way to go. You're doing good. Nap will feel good a little later today, right? Make up for that. We'll all be thrown off for weeks and it'll be fun. I love this part of the year though, because I, I really enjoy personally the later, you know, more daytime. So I, I'm, I'm all for that. So it's a little darker in the mornings, but that's okay. So, um, we're in our second week of our series, Breathe, today, and it comes from lessons that God taught me uh, as I walked through some of my COVID battle and struggle and things that uh, just jumped off the page all of a sudden from Scripture. And it's fascinating how God has designed us to have physical life through the process of breath, breathing. If you didn't have breath, breathing, you wouldn't have life. When God began life for Adam, he did so by breathing out from him and into Adam. And Adam began life when he breathed in what God had breathed out. That's the process. You have life when you breathe in what God has breathed out. It's the way it works. It's true for spiritual life as well as physical life. When Adam sinned, he lost that spiritual life. He kept his physical life, but God severely limited it from living forever to living a shorter time. And that's the effect of sin in our life. That is why Jesus came, so that you and I might have our sin paid for, so that our life might be redeemed, so that we might live forever, so that we might breathe in what God has breathed out and have spiritual life again as he designed it. So it's important that we know how to breathe and to breathe deeply, to take in all that he has given, to take in all that he has, to take in his forgiveness for your sins, the full forgiveness of your sins, all the ones in the past, all the ones today, all the ones for the future, to take in his full acceptance of who you are in Christ to take in the purpose he has for your life, to breathe all of that in, to see what he's doing in you, what he is accomplishing through you, to breathe all of that in brings life to you. And it requires breathing in what God has breathed out. Now the Bible itself is very clear that this is what he has breathed out. Scripture has been God breathed. And so if you want to experience the fullness of what he has breathed out, then you've got to find a time and a way to breathe this in. If you're not, you're not going to experience the fullness of life that is yours. So we have started something on YouTube this past week, some smaller messages, some 10 to 18 to 20 minute messages, a 10 part series we're doing there on how to spiritually breathe in scripture. You might say, I don't know if I know how to sit down and read God's word, take it in, process it, understand it. So many different books, so many words I can't pronounce. Hey, 
Listen to this little series. We've started two parts this past week. We'll do two more this next week. How to spiritually breathe in God's word. I promise you, it'll help you understand his word and how to breathe in spiritual life. So this idea of breathing in deeply is what he calls us to do with what he's given us. But it is also part of how we live life. If you want to have a physical, healthy life, you've got to get to this place where you learn how to breathe deeply. And it's a funny thing. It's not something that we all know how to do naturally. In fact, most people breathe in short breaths. They breathe very shallow. In fact, you are only using most likely a limited portion of your lung capacity. But there's great physical health that comes in learning to breathe deeply. When I've looked up some of the benefits of this, I thought, I have got to start learning how to breathe more deeply because one of the first benefits is improved mental abilities. I need that, right? Who doesn't need some improved mental abilities? When you learn how to truly breathe in deeply, I mean, not, not this kind of stuff. That's not a deep breath, right? A deep breath comes when you keep your shoulders down, you use your diaphragm, you breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth very slowly, which I'm still learning how to do, and you take in a long, deep breath, and this becomes your rhythm. When you learn that process, expanding your diaphragm, I know this is not a health lesson this morning, I understand this, I'm going somewhere. You learn how to expand your diaphragm, take in a deep breath, it will improve your physical health, improve mental abilities, lower blood pressure, lower heart rate, more endurance, less tired during the day, removal of toxins from your body. Yes, God has actually caused the process of you exhaling to be part of the way that toxins are removed from your body more relaxed, stronger diaphragm, all of those are important. And they are equally important when it comes to the spiritual life that you have. If you truly want to have joy in your life, you truly want to know God's presence with you, you truly want to be free from anxiety, you want to get over some habits, you want to break free from some anger and bitterness you struggle with, you want to break some stuff that you've carried for a long time, it comes through learning how to spiritually breathe in all that God has for you. That's where it starts. So many people say, I just want to I just want to change this part of my life, or I want this part of my life to be better. I want my marriage to change. I want my relationship with my kids to change. I want my job to change. I want my finances to change. I want my own peace of mind to change. And they want to do some things to try to make those happen instead of taking time with God and breathing in his truth. Look here. You can't breathe out anything until you've breathed in something. You can't change any part of your life until you've breathed in what God has for your life. You say, well, I'm struggling to to forgive someone. I understand, that's not easy, that's difficult, that's a challenge. But the way you get there is not looking at them and saying, I've gotta forgive them, I've gotta forgive them, I've gotta forgive them. The way you forgive this person is by coming back and breathing in what God has done to forgive you. 
And when you breathe that in, you'll look at them and say, I can do this. Because of what he's forgiven me. You cannot breathe out what you've not breathed in. If you're struggling with pleasing people in your life, you're struggling with trying to keep up with the crowd, you're struggling with trying to make everybody else happy, you will not break that pattern until you come back, spend time with God, and see how you have been made accepted in the beloved through Jesus Christ. You take that in, meditate on that, you let that transform you, you breathe that in, you'll get around people and you'll say, hey, I'm not here to be influenced by you anymore. I'm the influencer here. You become the salt of the earth instead of being peppered on all the time by everybody else. All right? Hey, I'm telling you, you cannot breathe out until you have breathed in something. It's important. The process of breathing begins with an inhale and it concludes with an exhale. And it becomes a rhythm that you walk in. You breathe in and you breathe out. If you're not breathing in, you can't breathe out. When I was about seven years old, I learned a lesson about that. So my brother is really kind of my half-brother. You ready, Phil? Okay. So I'm living in Oak Cliff. I'm seven years old. Beautiful backyard, pecan trees, green grass. And my brother, older, he played football, high school, and a little bit of college. And so he would come over and bring a football. He was a big fan of North Texas State University. And so he even, he was an artist as well. And so he brought me a helmet that was painted like North Texas State University. So I'm seven years old, we're out in the backyard. He says, let's go throw the ball. We do that. And I've got my helmet on. I've got my little shoulder pads on that seven-year-olds wear. And he's in one part of the yard. I'm in the back part of the yard. The house is over there. And he's throwing. Brad, you ready? I'm going to go longer. Sorry, Phil. Come on. Whoa. Hunter got nervous. Bad on me. Bad on me. Hold it. Hold it. Hold it. Hold it. Let me get out of this slide. All right. I'm ready. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Good. See, Brad threw a little lofty pass there. That's what you do with seven-year-olds. That's what I needed. And my brother was doing that. I don't know what got into my brother that day. I'm wearing my helmet. I'm wearing my pads. I'm just trying to keep up. That's all new to me. He just decided he wasn't going to do one of those little lofty safe passes that Brad just did. I'm not going to do this to you, Brad. <laughs> but he looked over at me. I could tell by the gleam in his eye this was going to be different. And he took it and just zoom. He just whizzed it. The next thing I know, I mean, I'm trying to respond, and I can't get my arms up fast enough. And that thing comes in, just zoom, hit me right there. You know what happened next. I could not breathe. I did that. I went, and it stopped. I had never felt the experience of losing my breath before, but I had it yanked away from me that moment by a football. It came in, hit me right there, and I looked up at my brother, and I thought, why did you do that to me? In that moment, my brother that loved me and I loved him, in that moment, he became the enemy. <laughs> he was public enemy number one in my mind. 
because he had just hurt me and hurt me deeply. And I didn't, I didn't know what this feeling was. I only know that I could not breathe. And so I panic and I try to run to the house where my mom is. Surely my mom can do something for me. And so I'm It was an awful moment because I had never felt that before. I tried to make it to the house, and my brother's coming toward me. He's the enemy. He's the last one I want to see at this moment. But he follows me in the house, and I'm, by this point, starting to catch my breath again. And he begins to explain what has just happened. And he tells me, what you need to do is just lie down on the floor right now. Just relax and start breathing slowly. Try to take a deep breath. And sure enough, I did. And I was able to breathe again. But in that moment, I was terrified. In that moment, it hurt because I'd never had my breath taken away from me before. You know, in life, that happens. An event happens. A phone call comes. A text shows up. A piece of mail arrives. A conversation happens. And it's news you didn't want to hear. It's news you didn't expect to hear. And it absolutely takes your breath away. And you don't know what to say. You don't know what to do. It feels like just a gut punch to you. And you react. Because you've never had that before. Maybe you panic like I did. Maybe you want to run. Because you don't know what to do. Sometimes it shows up in the way of a tragedy. Sometimes it shows up in a, an event you didn't expect. Sometimes it shows up when God speaks to you and it's in a word that you sure weren't expecting. It's in a way of correction or maybe it's in a way of direction and it catches you off guard and it takes your breath away. Some people said last Sunday's message was like that. Seven ways to know if you are spiritually healthy. If you missed that, you should go back and watch it because people, this is not what I intended, but people say it was like you just choo, choo. Just punching us in the gut every... The Holy Spirit does that sometimes. He teaches. He leads. He corrects. He directs. So today, the message is called, When the Breath Gets Knocked Out of You. We're going to look at some truth today. A story from Scripture that helps us know what to do when we get the breath knocked out of us. So turn your Bibles to 1 Kings 17. I'm going to do a little setup here before we get into the actual passage. Give me a little background to the story. It's going to involve three characters today. The setting is a time when there is a drought going on, a famine. There's no rain. God has promised to his prophet, Elijah, that there would be no rain and no dew on the ground for three years. And it was to show God's people that they were in a spiritual famine and God was allowing a physical famine to show them their spiritual famine. Mm. Do you know God does that sometimes? He will allow physical events to happen to get our attention to teach us a lesson. I do think that's what's happening around the world today. I do think that's what's happening in our nation today. 
And I'm ready for everybody to listen and wake up and us to hear it all so we can move on past it. Amen. So here we are, 1 Kings 17. Let me do a little bit of a setup. Three characters give me the story today. Elijah, who is a young prophet at this time. He's still learning to hear from God and act on what God tells him. We're going to meet a woman today who is a young, single mother. She'll be referred to as a widow here because her husband has died. We don't know how he died. We don't know what happened. We don't know how long it has been. I don't think it's been very long. It might have been as a result of the famine. We don't know. We only know it's a single mom who is struggling. She has one child, a young boy. I believe he's young because of the way the story is going to unfold today. You'll see why. We don't know his name. We don't know her name. We don't know a whole lot about her except she's a widow. 1 Kings 17, verse 8 is where I'm going to start today. It says, And the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. God gives him a direction. I want you to go somewhere. I want you to go to this place and stay. He says, See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. Go to this place, Elijah, and God will provide through you or through her to you. So, verse 10, he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, please bring me a little water and a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and says, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Now, you and I are reading that story and like, a cup of water and a piece of bread? Ugh. I mean, why didn't you ask for Whataburger or something? You know, something more than that. It's a famine time. There's not much available. And he's asking for something that she's going to find hard to provide. He's asking for something that not many people had. He's asking a lot of her. Verse 12. So she said, as the Lord your God lives. I want to emphasize one word here. Your. Your God Hold on to that. She doesn't say, as the Lord my God, as the Lord our God, as the Lord your God. Which means she either did not have a relationship with him, know him, or had, but had walked away. As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I'm going to gather a couple of sticks that I may go in, prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Not a lot of hope here for her. Only thing she sees in the future is a dead-end street. This is only going to be our last meal, and then we're going to die. The famine is that great. Verse 13 and Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you've said, but make me a small cake from it first. Whoo, I take some guts. And you might think, man, what an egotistical guy. What a self-struck prophet. No, Elijah wanted her to learn something. If you will put God first, he will provide for your needs. Do not fear. Go and do as you've said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me and afterward make some for yourself and your son. 
For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. Until this famine is over, God's gonna provide for you. He's gonna give you oil. He's gonna give you flour. But you'll need to put him first by giving to me his man on the street. This is the man of God. Put God first and watch what happens. Verse 15, so she went away and did according to the word of Elijah and she and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up nor did the jar of oil run dry according to the word of the Lord which she had spoke by Elijah. That's just the background for our setting here. We needed to know that before we get into the story because here's where the real meat comes in today. 1 Kings 17, verse 17 through 24. Verse 17 says, Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. Doesn't say why. Doesn't say what happened. Doesn't tell his symptoms. All we know is that this little boy became sick. She wasn't planning on it. Life had been challenging enough. Lost her husband. Now in a famine. Ready to cook the last meal that they would ever have together. And now the boy gets sick. Now mind you, this happens after she has done what the man of God said. The man of God said, prepare some food for me and then you'll watch your oil and flour or meal never run out. And she had done that. And then the boy gets sick. The rest of the verse says, and his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. I didn't reword that to make it fit into our cool series. It's the word the New King James uses. There was no breath left in him. In other words, he breathed his last and died. This is not the natural order of life. Children are not supposed to die before parents. Children shouldn't have to suffer. This is not what she had planned especially when things seemed to be going in such a good direction. She did what the man of God said. She did exactly what he said, and they'd had enough to eat, and things seemed to be going so well. But then all of a sudden, with no explanation, no word from God about it, only silence from Elijah, silence from heaven, the boy dies. Now that will take the breath out of you. When tragedy of that scale hits you. When the worst case scenario happens to you. That will take your breath away. That will cause you to wonder what is going on. God where were you? God, why is this happening? God, I did what you said. I put 
this man's food ahead of our own because that's what you said. And now my son is dead. What we see in verse 18 is this woman's response, which all of us in this room will quickly identify with. It's a very natural response. It's a very natural response, no matter who you are, but especially if what our conclusion is, she really didn't know that God was good. Verse 18 says, So she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Now, you and I can read this like I just read it, but you'd have to know the condition of a woman who's just lost her son. I don't imagine her sitting down across from Elijah with a cup of coffee having a rational conversation. I hear these words with panic. I hear them with distress. I hear them with volume. I hear her almost screaming these words with tears. What have I to do with you, O man of God? What do you think you're doing here? Why have you come? Is that how you read it better? I tend to see it like that. What do you think you are doing in my house? What have you done? What have I to do with you? And as we see further what she said, we see why. Have you come to bring my sin to remembrance? Hmm. Now we get a little bit of understanding what's going on here. This is not just the grief of a mother. This is the grief of someone who's carrying something from their past that has all of a sudden come forward and is in this moment. She says, is this what happens from your God? Is this what happens because of what I did? And you'll notice it says sin singular. There's something in her past. I don't know what it was. I don't know what she did. But there was something so, so massive in scale so painful to her that she remembered it and when this tragedy happens, she wonders, is it because of that? Is this what you're doing, God? Is this why you came, Elijah, to bring all of that back up into my face, to point out to me once again where I failed? Is this what you're doing? Are you pointing out my sin? And doing so by killing my son? Is this what your God does? Does your God punish people? Does your God make people suffer? Does your God take the life of the most precious part of me, the only part of me I had left, the part of me that I loved? Is this what your God does? I get it. I get the questions, I get the pain. She had had the breath knocked out of her. And she was looking at Elijah and God like I looked at my brother. He all of a sudden became the enemy to me when that was not 
anything that was in his mind or heart. And all I wanted to do was get away from him. And that's what this woman is experiencing all of a sudden. She's carried guilt. She's carried shame. She's carried embarrassment. She hasn't found relief from it. She has not been breathing in forgiveness, peace, presence of God in her life. She hasn't been breathing spiritually at all. So I get her question. It's the same question you and I ask when tragedy happens. God, I've been walking with you. I've tried to be faithful to you. Why? Why did this happen? Why did they have to die? Why did I have to lose my job? Why did my marriage go south? Why have my kids rebelled against me? Why is this happening? Why is there turmoil in my life? Why is all of this happening? Why does it feel like I just keep getting my gut punched? Why does it feel like the breath is being knocked out of me? God, why? I get it. That's where I love in this passage where Elijah becomes a beautiful picture of Jesus himself. And here she is face to face with Elijah and she is unloading. What happens next is the same thing that Jesus does for us. Verse 19. He said to her, give me your son. The picture that we'll see as this unfolds a little bit more is that while this conversation is happening, while she's saying these things to Elijah, she is holding her son. That's why I say he's young. Because she is holding this one that she loved. The one that she had given birth to. The one that she had fed. The one that she had bathed. The one that she had with her when her husband died. The one that they had struggled together through the famine. The one that they were going to cook she was going to cook their last meal for. Here was this one, and she's holding him. She's holding him tightly, and she's unloading on Elijah. Elijah, And he says to her, give me your son. That's tough. Because Elijah was saying, I know you're grieving. I know you're hurting. I know you just had the breath knocked out of you. But what I need you to do so that I can help you, so that God can work here, is I need you to let go of your pain. I need you to let go of what you're holding. I need you to release the grip. Hmm. It's hard. Because when life hurts and an event happens, 
There's something that almost just feels right about holding on to it, grasping it, staying in that moment of anger, staying in that moment of resentment, staying in that moment of how dare you, how could you. And Elijah says to her, hand me, give me your son. Without knowing what he's going to do, without knowing what he's going to say, what's going to happen next. He just makes the command, give me your son. I believe that's what Jesus does with us. That event, that thing, that circumstance, that whatever in your life is your place of grief, pain, that you've been holding on to, that thing that took your breath away. Jesus looks right into your eyes and says, release the grip. Let go of trying to control this situation. Let go of your hold on it. Let go of thinking you can fix this or that everybody else is to blame for this. Release this to me. That is a real step of faith. To let go, release, give in to the hands of the man of God what you have so been hurt by. It's one of these dramatic moments in Scripture. You just want to sit here for just a moment. You don't want to just rush through the passage. You want to take it in and you wonder, what, what will she do? Will she give her son over the one that she loved, the one that has lost his breath, had his breath disappear from his body? What will she do? Scripture unfolds in the rest of 19. It says, so he, Elijah, took him, the boy, out of her arms. Remember he had said, give me your son. And here it says, he is taking the son out of her arms. All she could do was release the grip Elijah reached and took the boy. You may not be able to fully give over to Jesus what he's asking you to, but you can release the grip. You can let go of the control. You can let go of the resentment. You can let go of the anger. If you'll release the grip, he will help you Release the pain. It's the way it works. He took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying. You see, the woman invited Elijah to stay at their house in a room that was on top of her house. It's a separate quarters where he as a man of God would be stationed as he did what God told him to do in the area. 
And he takes this boy up to his upper room, says where he was staying, and he laid him in his own bed. Mm. If you want to see hope and healing when you've been gut-punched, when you've had your breath taken away, the first thing is to release the grip. The second is to let it leave you. And that's what this woman had to do. She had to be willing to let her son go into the man of God's hands so that he could do whatever he wanted to do next. So without knowing what was going to happen, without knowing what was going to unfold next, she let him take her pain. She let him take what had taken her breath away. Jesus comes to do that for us. In your pain that you're experiencing, he doesn't stand over you to condemn you. Elijah had nothing to say about her sin. Elijah had no condemnation for her in this moment. He offered her comfort in her pain. But she had to release and let him have control. It's another one of these moving moments. It's fascinating what it says here that he took him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. So Elijah's this beautiful picture of of Jesus here. And if that's the case, and if this boy represents our pain and our grief and our areas that we've been gut-punched by, and Jesus says to us, let me have that. Let me take it. That thing you don't understand, that thing that hurts so much right now, that thing that you can't do anything else about, that thing that you've tried to control, let me have it. And he takes him away from her. He takes him to his own place. He takes it to his room. He takes it to his bed. And that thing that Jesus says to you, let me have it, He will take, and he will take it and hold it close. He will take it into his room. He'll take it into himself. He knows how to help you in your grief, your pain, your confusion, your loss. In fact, he's the only one that can do anything about it. She was out of options. But he was not. And sometimes life brings us those moments so that we can know, I I don't know what else to do. So God, I release it all to you. Those are powerful moments. Those are necessary moments. Because this is where the story is about to change. tells us in verse 20 
that Elijah now upstairs, now in his own place. Now we get a, we get a, a scene that this woman does not get to see. The camera has turned on in his room in a sense. The cameras are set up and we're watching a scene unfold that she knows nothing about. She is downstairs. She's grieving. She's crying. But this scene is unfolding upstairs. Then he, Elijah, cried out to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? Do you think Elijah really thought that? I don't know if he did. I find it hard to believe that Elijah would all of a sudden be conflicted and think, God, have you really killed her son as a way of getting back at her? Is this what's happening here? I kind of don't think that's really what Elijah was doing. But he was crying out to God her question. But it shows the power of when someone gets bitter and someone gets angry and they start spewing that stuff to other people. Even some firm people of belief can start doubting. Oh, you got to be careful when you're spewing when you're bitter. Because you'll affect a whole lot of people. The New Testament says, be careful lest a root of bitterness spring up and by it many are defiled. Be careful. I get it if you're bitter. I get it if you're angry. But get with someone you trust. Get with someone who's godly. Get with someone who can pray with you. So Elijah cries out. He says, I got to ask a question, God. And he, word for word, says what she said. And he cries out to the Lord. You know the answer. He knew the answer. But I love the fact that here is Elijah praying on behalf of the woman. Elijah is praying what she was saying. She didn't have the strength to pray. She only knew what to say. But Elijah went upstairs and prayed for her. Prayed for this son. Prayed for an answer. And remember, Elijah is a picture of Jesus in this story. Did you know that when you don't know what to pray, Jesus is praying for you? He is in heaven praying for you. There might be times where you think, well, I don't even have the strength to pray, and I don't think anybody else is even praying for me. Mm -mm. There's a Savior in heaven who's praying for you. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And there's no wall between them. There's no disconnect. There's no communication issue. And whatever he prays, Jesus, I mean, the Father hears. When Jesus prays, the Father hears. Whatever, whatever Jesus says, the Father hears. Do you hear me? When he's praying for you, the Father hears the Son praying for you. In fact, the New Testament says it this way. It says that he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. And he always lives to make intercession for them. He lives, he loves to pray for you and me. That's what he's doing. So don't ever think, I'm all alone. No one's praying for me. Hold up. You've got a savior in heaven, if you know him, who's praying for you. And he's at the right hand of the father. He's praying just as Elijah is praying for this woman. Verse 21. 
and he stretched himself out on the child three times. Elijah's passionate here. He is really engaged in this. This is not kneel beside the bed, pray something, and walk out of the room. Elijah is praying, and he's so passionate that he gets on top of this child and lays there and cries out to God as a way of saying, God, my life into his life, my breath into his breath. And he prays, and in fact, the Bible says here, he does this three times. He's fully engaged in this. My life for his life. It's like Jesus who goes to the cross, buried, put in a tomb, three days his life for our life. Beautiful picture here of this passionate prayer of Elijah. You know that God hears passionate, persistent prayer, right? He hears when we cry. And he loves it when we are persistent in our prayer. Elijah didn't pray once and get up and leave. He prayed again. He prayed until he got an answer. Because God loves the passionate, persistent prayers of his children. He loves it when his children believe that he can truly move mountains. He loves it when his children believe he can provide even when there seems to be no way. He loves it when his children pray and believe that God can raise what has been dead. He loves it when his children pray with that kind of confidence, and that's what's happening here for Elijah. Verse 21, the second half says, and said, oh Lord my God, here's what Elijah prays. I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. God, breathe breath back into this son, into this child. God, what is dead, what has lost its breath, breathe life back into it. This is true for us today. That part of your life today that has had the breath gone from it, that part of your life today that you say, man, my, my marriage hasn't had any breath in it for a long time. Hey, there's a savior in heaven praying for you and he's praying that your marriage would have the breath breathed back into it. That relationship that's broken, that relationship that's strained, that fear, that panic, whatever it is in your life that has consumed you, taken the breath away from you, your job situation, your career situation, that peace that you just can't seem to come to, there is a Savior in heaven praying for you today, right now, that the breath of God would come back and fill that part of your life and it would live again. That's what he desires. Elijah wasn't going to settle for lifelessness. And God says to us, you pray to me. I can resurrect what you think is dead. I can bring life back to what you think is breathless and hopeless. You know, sometimes in a story in scripture, what's not said is more powerful than what is said. Get the scene. This woman who lost her child is downstairs. Her son is upstairs with this man. He's praying. She doesn't know. She can't hear. This is not some cheap 20th century house. It's a stone house, stone roof. She doesn't know anything that's going on up there. What's not in this story is any evidence of her going up You're crazy. You don't even know what you're doing in there anyway. What do you think you're doing? You don't see any interference of this woman in the story at this point. You don't hear her getting all up in this man of God's face 
complaining, telling me that know what he's talking about, she is absent because she has handed him over to the man of God. When you hand something over to God, let him have it. Don't go back. Don't try to be the one to fix it. Don't meddle in people's lives that you've handed over to God. Don't keep criticizing. Don't keep complaining. When you've handed it over, you've handed it over. Let him do his work. Sometimes you get in there and interfere, and you might change the outcome of the story. You get in there and give your two cents about what this person ought to be doing, this person ought to be doing, and getting all in their business and all this stuff. Uh-uh. Let God have it. He knows how to work. In fact, when it comes to matters of the heart, he's the only one that can change them. Not you and not me. She's noticeably absent. We go on to verse, well, I don't want to go to 22 yet. Well, I do. Well, I do. Verse 22. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. That'll make you breathe again right there. God heard Elijah's prayer, and the breath of God came into this boy, and he was revived. What was dead is now alive. God heard his prayer. What was the place of grief was now alive. What was the place of so much pain, what was a reminder of all her guilt and shame is now alive. God did the unexpected. And this is all happening upstairs. And she doesn't even know it yet. The boy has come back to life and she doesn't know it. She's still down there grieving when he's up there breathing. Sometimes, even when you don't see it, he's working. Even when you don't feel it, he's working. Even when you don't know how, he's working. She's about to find out, but that means sometimes that miracle that you've been praying for, God is working behind the scenes. He's praying and working. Don't panic because you can't see the answer yet. It's coming. Even when you don't see it, he's working. Verse 23. says, then Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room. Down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. That had to be an unbelievable moment of seeing God work, restore, bring life to what she thought could never know life again. Now, that would be a place for this story to end, but it's not. There's one more verse. And to me, the last verse is the best verse. What happens next really has more punch than this. Verse 24. Then, then the woman said to Elijah, Now, by this, 
I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. You know who came to life that day? A son did physically, but she did spiritually. Now, now, now I see the light bulb comes on. She gets it. Your God is true. The word of the Lord in your mouth is right. I believe you. I trust you. For that moment, finally for that woman, she breathed. She breathed in. God is good. God hears us. God has not come to condemn me for my sin, but remove the guilt of my sin. He's come to bring life. And when you believe that, you'll breathe again. But if you're holding on to guilt, if you're holding on to resentment, if you're holding on to bitterness, I'm telling you, you're shallow breathing today. And you're wondering why you don't see God. You're wondering why you don't sense his presence. You're wondering why you don't see answers to your prayers. It's because you're shallow breathing. He says, I've come that you may have life and life abundant. In other words, I've come so that you can breathe and breathe deeply. Peace, forgiveness, hope, and life. Would you bow your heads? I don't know what it is for you today that you hold in your hands It's your point of grief. It's your point of pain. It's your point of confusion. And you've held on to it. You still are. And it's making you shallow breathe. It's making you angry. It's making you bitter. It's making you not trust God. It's It's making you not trust people. Jesus stands in front of you today, right now. And he says, would you give that to me? Would you release your grip on it? Would you release your control of it? Would you let that go? And would you let it go into my hands? Let me take it from you. Let me have it. Because I know what to do with it. And if you will, I'll remove it from you And I'll begin a work in it. You won't see it. You won't feel it. You won't know it. But I'll be working. In the meantime, breathe. Breathe in my trust. Breathe in faith. Breathe in peace. Father, today... We're overwhelmed at the compassion that you have for us in the midst of our grief and pain. And your desire is not to condemn or harm us, but to free us. For each of us in this room right now, and for those watching online, I pray you would help us release our grip, our control, 
our ability to think we can fix it and let you do what you want to do. And may we let you approach us and take it from us so that you can work. God, we open our arms, our hands, and our heart in full trust of you. You are the God who heals. You are the God who restores. You are the God who makes a way. You are the God who brings life where there has been death. And may we be a people like this woman who trusts you. Thank you for loving, having compassion, and healing our hearts in Jesus' name.